from Psalm 95. Come, let's shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord God, having just heard your word and, and this call, even as we earlier just prayed that we would listen to you, that we would hear your voice. We pray even now that you would speak to each of our hearts with such clarity that we would not in any way be able to deny that it is you speaking to us through your word and that you would give us all we need to respond with faith and love in what you say to us. Help us to do this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I thought this morning I'd begin by letting you in on my relationship with Jeff, uh, our other pastor. He, he knows I'm going to say this, so it's, you know. Um, we see eye to eye on so many things. Like, I mean, I, I, would, I don't want to stand up here and list all the things. We see eye to eye on so much, except one, perhaps. TV shows. Um, Jeff shared a few weeks ago that he's a person who grew up in the 80s, right, in a time where there was a lot of optimism, uh, there was a high amount of optimism, and that, I would say, really colors and affects what he looks for in a TV show. There has to be some kind of hero. There has to be a good guy, some, someone that you're, you're, you're really behind and you're rooting for them. I was born in the 80s, but I grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s, and so that means I like dark, cynical shows. So one of my favorite shows of all time uh, would have to be uh, Breaking Bad, which if you know anything about that show, it's kind of the opposite of a hero show. It's an anti-hero show. It, it's about a villain. Um, my favorite comedy of all time would probably be Arrested Development, the original three seasons, not the other ones Netflix did. And that show has no good characters whatsoever. They are all selfish and self-centered. Everyone is the butt of some joke. Uh, it, it's great. It's fantastic. Um, 
And, and third, probably in my uh, mid-20s, I watched it after it came out, but a drama, HBO's The Wire, which if you know anything about that show or you've ever seen it, it is just about the most morally gray show I can imagine. There are no pure, like, good characters. The best characters, the most upright characters are often the drug dealers, and the cops are super crooked and messed up, and it, it's just every season ends, and it's kind of relative morally gray. And I don't know why, but I love it. You know, the I love the characters, I love all this, but as much uh, as I kind of hate to admit it, um, this psalm vindicates Jeff. It might make for really interesting TV and great characters and drama, but there's something wrong and dangerous if our approach to the world, if our posture toward the world is one of cynicism, is one of distrust. To have such a posture toward the world, toward the others, toward others, and ultimately toward God, this psalm is going to warn us, is a real, real spiritual danger. This is our last Sunday in the book of Psalms. If you've been with us this summer, we've been in this series where we've been um, really focusing our attention on God and some aspect of who God is or what God has done and seeking to allow that to draw us into this life of wonder and joy and awe in knowing God. And starting next week, as uh, Jeff just actually prayed about, we're jumping into the book of Deuteronomy, which is going to be awesome. Like, if you're not excited about Deuteronomy, just, I don't know, get yourself excited. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be really great. I'm excited about Deuteronomy. And this psalm is really the perfect psalm to bridge these two series. Because this psalm is a psalm that calls us to wonder and joy and awe because of who our God is. And yet, very much in line with the book of Deuteronomy, this is a psalm that calls us to listen, to hear, and the danger of not hearing and hardening our hearts to God. So if you have the text in front of you, we're, we're going to start to unpack it together. And uh, this morning, uh, kind of how we'll unpack it, um, we can see this psalm in kind of two parts. So the second half of the psalm, which starts at today, if you hear his voice, warns of the danger of hardening our hearts. The first part shows us the remedy of what I'm calling wholehearted worship. And then we'll end with the implicit question that the psalm leaves us with, with which is, what are we going to do? What, what will you do? with God's voice, with God's word. So three things this morning. We're, we're thinking about the danger, the remedy, and, and then that question, what will you do? So first, the danger. The danger of hardening your heart. In the Bible, when it, when it talks about your heart, it's not just talking about you know, feelings or emotion. In the Bible, your heart is talking about the control center of your life. It's, it's the organ where you are thinking and rationalizing and you're also feeling and you're willing. It, it's the whole you. And what we're warned about here is the posture of a heart that distrusts the Lord. And the psalm gives us an exact picture of what the writer is talking about. So if you jump down, second half of verse 7, um, read with me, today if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So what's being referenced here is first an event in Exodus 17, and then a similar event in Numbers chapter 20. So the first event, Exodus 17, is not long after the people have just been miraculously delivered from the Egyptians at the Red Sea, saved by God. They're in the wilderness, they get thirsty, and they start grumbling, and they start complaining to Moses and against God as well. So that's Exodus 17. The other event, Numbers chapter 20, happens like 40 years later. It's at the end of the wilderness wandering. Again, the people are thirsty. They grumble against Moses and against God. 40 years in the wilderness, what has been learned? What, what kind of wisdom has been gained from all of this experience with God? It seems like nothing. Nothing has changed. Though they had seen God's works, right? They had seen God open a path through the Red Sea, dry ground that they went through, and then the waters came crashing down on the Egyptians, and God saved them, though they saw that. Though they experienced God's care day after day, manna day after day, though they had seen miracles, they had seen water come from a rock to give them drink when they needed it. God had done miracle after miracle. Their response, verse 9 they tested the Lord. They tried him. And what this basically means is they said, I'm not really interested in what you did in the past. Show me today. Prove to me right now that you are who you say you are, that you are good. What have you done for me lately, God? Let's come back to that idea of cynicism. So this past week, I was listening to a podcast, and one of the things they were discussing was how we're in the midst of a time where many high-profile people and institutions have been exposed. I mean, I don't know how far back we want to go with this, but if, if we even just go back to, uh, you know, it was probably four or five years ago, the hashtag MeToo movement, and you think about all of the people in Hollywood that were just exposed. And then you think about the hashtag church two uh, thing. And, and you could think about prominent um, uh, people in the government being exposed. You could think about prominent churches and church leaders in the last five to ten years that have been exposed. And they were saying, on the one hand, you know, it, it's kind of good. Like, like, it's good to know the truth. But when all of this is hitting you and you just see all these people, like, they just seem like they're not really who they said they are, it can breed this sort of cynicism. We can be tempted to think, that's just everybody. Everybody's just out for themselves. Everybody's just selfish. There is no truth. There is no meaning. If anyone claims it, it's just a power move. And having that sort of cynical, distrusting posture while it can seem, I don't, I don't know, intellectual, or it can seem cool, and it certainly is um, safe because you don't have to trust, 
that cynicism is not the way forward. A life of suspicion, think about this, a life of suspicion where you're just seeing through everything and everyone is not going to be a life of flourishing. It's going to be a life of no relationships ultimately and no community because relationships and community always take trust. And moreover, I don't know anyone who has that kind of cynical, suspicious, distrust posture that ever applies it fully, that follows through in every way with that. Because if you think about it, if you're going to have that posture of distrusting and suspicion toward people outside, toward God, why, why would you trust yourself? Like you have to flip that on yourself and just think about trying to analyze your motives and what you're doing and your choices, you would never be able to do anything. You would never be able to make a decision. You'd always be second-guessing yourself, wondering if you can really trust what you think, what you feel, what you believe. It is unlivable. I don't know anyone who takes the distrust and cynicism and applies it as consistently to themselves as they may do outward toward God or others. And what that means is hidden beneath the distrusting, cynical heart is self-trust. And this is what we see in the wilderness. While it was distrust toward God, it was radical self-trust. Because think about it, right? Like, it means that as, you, as the people in the wilderness are distrusting God, they have to be saying, we are perceiving this situation correctly. We are interpreting all this stuff right. We know how the situation should go. We know how God is supposed to act, and therefore when he doesn't do that, he's either not God or he's not good or he's not who he says he is. Underneath the cynicism, the distrust, and even sometimes our doubts, right, you will find a heart that is full of self-trust. And that is never going to lead you into a life of flourishing. It'll never lead you into a life of actually knowing the living God and finding rest and fullness in him. That is the danger that this psalm points out for us. What about the remedy? The remedy that we see in the first half of this psalm is wholehearted worship. And when we're talking about worship, we have to understand, right, this is not just something that religious people do. Regardless of, you know, whether you consider yourself religious or you think about friends and family, you know, we all give ultimate worth to something in our lives. There is something in our lives that we center on, that we give ultimate value to. And one of the greatest dangers for us is to harden ourselves toward God, to have this posture of distrust. And in verses 1 through 7, we see the remedy. This remedy, this worship, verses 1 and 2, involves wholehearted praise and enthusiasm. If you notice, look at, notice the word shout that's repeated in these verses. Come, let's shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. 
three times. And it's actually two different Hebrew verbs. So one of them is, is a word that's often used in context of, of lifting up your voice and singing and rejoicing. And the other, two times we see it, second half of verse 1 and second half of verse 2, it's the kind of shouting that you do at an athletic event. Like if you, if you go to a stadium. And I was thinking because this summer uh, we, we took our kids. Our kids were just old enough. We have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. And our kids were just old enough to go to like a big sporting event. Um, if you're not a soccer fan, you won't maybe know who these people are, but I'll explain it to you. Uh, we went and saw at Lambeau Field, Manchester City play Bayern Munich. Manchester City won the Premier League last year, which is like the best league, arguably, of soccer in the world. And Bayern Munich won the Bundesliga, which is the German league. And we saw these two teams play each other at Lambeau Field. There were over 78,000 people. Lambeau was almost completely filled. And Man City had their new signing, their star center forward, Erling Holland. And he started that game. It was the first time he walked on the pitch in a jersey. And in 12 minutes into the game, Erling Haaland scored his first Man City goal. And half of the stadium, right, everybody is just, as you could imagine, they're like shouting and clapping and screaming their heads off. And that's kind of this Hebrew verb. It's used in the context of when the first Israelite king is proclaimed as king. And you could imagine, right, like, you are excited, you have a king, and you're rejoicing in that. It's also used in 1 Samuel 17 when the Israelites are going out to battle against the Philistines. So this is, this is a battle cry kind of shout. And as you can imagine, you can't really do a battle cry cynically. Right? How silly that, I, I was even trying, I don't even know how I would do it. It would involve a big eye roll a battle cry is like you have to get your whole body involved and you're like getting ready to go out and fight. This is the kind of wholehearted enthusiasm that this psalm is calling us to. And why? What reasons do we have to give ourselves to such praise? Verses 3 through 5. Because Yahweh is the creator God. Everywhere, everywhere you see the word Lord in this psalm, it is the name Yahweh. It is God's personal name. Verse 3, for Yahweh is a great God, a great king above all gods. Our worship must be wholehearted. It must be our whole self because the God that we worship is the God who created everything. Everything exists from him. And I was thinking about it this week. Um, there are some interesting parallels. There's a lot of differences, but there's some interesting parallels between the ancient Near Eastern world and our world. In our world, we can compartmentalize, right? And we can divide up. So you have, you know, like the you at work, and then you can have the you at home with your family. You can have the you with your friends. You can have the you at church and all the other stuff that you do. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, you know, it, it, it's different. But they had different gods for all of these different kinds of places. So if you look at verses 4 and 5, Baal was the mountain god. Tiamat was a sea god. Molech was the god of the depths. And this psalm says, no. 
God, Yahweh, is the God over all. He is the God of the sea and the land. He's the God of the depths and the mountain peaks. Shout and rejoice and be thankful with your whole heart, with your whole being, because the God who created all of this is your Savior. We see this wholehearted worship not only involves shouting and praise, but verse 6, it involves wholehearted submission. Verse 6, come. That's an invitation word. Come, enter in. Let's worship. Let's bow down. Let's kneel before Yahweh, our maker. And all of these words describe, right, you can hear it, getting low. The first word that's translated worship is literally a word that means to prostrate oneself. We are to bow down, to kneel, to lay ourselves flat before Yahweh. And again, that's a thing you can't like half do, right? Like it involves the whole of you. And again, the writer tells us why. Verse 7, why should we do this? For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. We must come with wholehearted submission because Yahweh is our redeemer. He's our shepherd. And the imagery in verse 7, we're to picture God as our shepherd, the one who, who is leading us, who is keeping us who is protecting his sheep. And the last phrase of verse 7 literally translates to the sheep of his hand. And you could imagine a shepherd, you know, going out and doing his work during the day and then, and then bringing the sheep back into the fold at night. And, you know, he has his hand out and each one of the sheep are kind of like going into the gate and almost like I do with my dog, there's, there's a little rub of the hand on the head. This is talking about the individual and particular care with which Yahweh watches over each one of his. You take all this together, and we are invited to come before Yahweh, the creator and the redeemer, with wholehearted joy and enthusiasm, with awe and all submission, and we are to take this posture into all the world, into every part of our life, knowing that the one who holds the depths in his hand, the one who formed the land with his hand, is the one who holds your life with loving faithfulness. And the question that this psalm implicitly asks is, will you come? Will you respond to that invitation? Verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. God has spoken. He has spoken in his word, and he has most fully and finally spoken in his son, in Jesus Christ. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews tells us that the son the one through whom God created the world. The Son is the one who upholds the universe by his powerful word. And this Son, our great shepherd, laid down his life to redeem us. 
right? He came into this world that was made through him and for him, a world that did not know him or recognize him. He came into this broken world, a world full of so much faithlessness, and yet he lived the ultimate life of faithfulness, of entrusting himself to God, of loving his neighbor. And then he goes to the cross and he dies that we might be cleansed of our sin, that we might be able to be brought in to know this God, to love him with all of our lives, to have rest and fullness in him. That is what God is saying to us this morning. It's what he is saying to you through his word right now. What are you going to do with that? I want you to consider, wherever you are this morning, consider that everything I just said is true for the sake of argument. If everything I just said is true, do you see what a profound evil it is to distrust this God? To begin to even test him or demand that he prove himself afresh would be to treat him at the very least as if he's our equal and even probably that we are above him. To test God, to demand that he prove himself afresh begins with the colossally huge assumption that right now we know better. And that if God really is who he says he is, well, he better show it and he better prove it to me on my terms. To stand before the God who made you and made everything, the God who has revealed himself in his word, who has demonstrated the reliability of his word and his promises, who has loved you by coming into this world, taking on flesh, dying the death that you deserve, to look at that and to say, I need more evidence. That's not good enough for me. You have to admit that if this psalm is true, it is a profound evil. It is not a morally neutral thing. And it is this distrust rooted in radical self-trust that results in verse 11. They will not enter my rest. But that is not what God wants us to do, which is why we have this psalm, why he gives us this warning that we would listen. God says, will you listen to me? I think it's fair to say that there are probably two kinds of people here today. There are some, perhaps, who right now at this moment, you know, I, I don't believe in Jesus. I am not following him. And there are others here today, you believe in Jesus, you want to follow him, you want to live by faith, and yet you know that there are places in your life where you struggle to trust God, where you struggle to listen, where you struggle to bring your whole self and your whole heart to him. Wherever you are, I want you to think about what this psalm shows us about our heart. The reality is our hearts are active. Your heart is dynamic. Your heart is responding right now. It is hardening or it is softening. It is going astray or it is drawing near. What will you do with this God and his voice? Will you lean in? Will you make yourself vulnerable? Will you open yourself up to listening to what he is saying to you? 
if you don't believe, and you, may, you know, maybe you have questions or doubts, I would just ask, what, you know, what are you going to do with those? It, it, we can't just, you know, sit in our doubts forever. And again, this psalm, if this psalm is true, there is no neutral place to stand, really. I mean, like, your entire existence, this psalm would say, testifies to you that God is the creator of the world. He is God over everything. So consider God's revelation of himself, his voice surrounding you in creation. Um, Jeff quoted this a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to quote it again because it's, it's really fantastic. Francis Collins, a name that maybe some of you know, I mean, just top, top, top scientist, was the director of the Human Genome Project, uh, was the former director of the NIH, the top agency responsible in the U.S. for biomedical health and research. He was an atheist and became a Christian in his adult life, and he writes this, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and, strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or even in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would, be, there would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. Consider also the trustworthiness of the scriptures. I don't have time to unpack this right now, but let me point you to a resource. If you go to our website, trinityhinsdale.com, uh, main page, scroll about halfway down, there's a thing you can click on that says, how do we believe? And you can read a really short article that Jeff wrote called, Can We Trust the Bible? If you don't yet believe, what are you doing with the doubts? Are you willing to seek out answers? Are you willing to lean in and listen? But for the rest of us here this morning, if you're here this morning as someone who knows the mercies of God in Jesus, we have to ask ourselves as well, what are we doing with God's voice in our life? Are we coming to him with our whole self, with our whole heart, with our whole life, in celebratory joy and in awe and submission. None of us do this perfectly. I, I thought of this quote Martin Luther said many years ago, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness, not health, but he healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We, shall not, we are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The question we should ask is, are we opening ourselves up to God's living and active word? Are you this morning moving toward God and his word and the posture of listening and letting it analyze your life and speak into your life, or are you holding back? Will you listen to his voice in the places where obedience and submission is hard for you? Will you listen to his voice in the challenges and turmoil and hard places of life? Will you listen to his voice in those places where you need to hear his promises and the loving voice of Jesus speak into your guilt, your shame, your sadness? <laughs>